0: Good morning church. It's a, a blessing to be with you again and uh, for those of you who are new here we are so glad that you are visiting us um, and if you're new here you probably have no idea who I am. Uh, my name is Will. I am the pastor here at Tri-Village Church and I am the guy who gets the absolute privilege of leading this wonderful congregation. Um, now, for those of you who uh, have been following along, have been here for the past couple weeks, you know that we are in a series right now entitled Living Hope. And what we're doing in this series is we are going section by section through the book of 1 Peter, okay? So if you have your Bibles, uh, I want you to turn to 1 Peter, and we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. So if you're new to the whole Bible thing and you're like, where the heck is First Peter? I want you to turn all the way to the end of the Bible, where the maps are and uh, the, the pretty pictures are, and then you go left and then you'll run into First Peter. It's closer to the end than it is to the beginning. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, if you don't have a Bible, there's no, there's no issues. We are going to have the verse here on the screen behind me, okay? And what we're going to do this morning is we are going to be discussing and addressing the subject of holiness, We are going to be discussing and addressing the subject of holiness, okay? And what we're going to do is we're going to look at holiness under three headings, okay? We're going to learn three truths about holiness. If you could put those three truths up. The first thing that we're going to learn this morning is we are going to learn about the meaning of holiness. Then the second thing we're going to learn about this morning is we are going to look at the necessity of holiness. And then lastly, the third and final thing we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at the motivation for holiness, all right, so we're going to look at the meaning of it, the necessity of it, and then we're going to conclude by looking at the motivation for it. So let's begin by looking at the meaning and or definition of holiness. And to, to look at the, to find the meaning of holiness, I want to read for you. Um, I'm going to just read the passage because it's so short. I'm going to just read the whole passage for you. It's only three verses. Here's what it says in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Okay, so the first truth that we see here in this passage is we see the meaning of holiness. We see the definition of holiness. And the reason why I want to begin by giving you the meaning of holiness, the reason why I want to begin by giving you the definition of holiness is because in verses 15 and 16, he brings up holiness four times in two verses. He says, but just as he he who called you is holy, so be holy, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. So in two verses, he brings up the word holy four times. And the reason why I want to begin by giving you the meaning, the definition of holiness, is because when a lot of us think of the word holiness, there are certain definitions that come to mind, and unfortunately, a lot of those definitions are not biblical at all. Okay? Because here's what happens. Here's what happens. When you bring up worldliness to a, 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 a neighbor or a family member or a coworker who doesn't know Jesus, holiness in our culture is like a swear word, right? It's, it's, it's like derogatory. You bring up holy, and everyone's like, rolls their eyes, like, oh, here we go. There goes the Christian, the holier-than-thou Christian, telling us about how much better they are than us. And honestly, I don't even blame them. Before I came to know Jesus, that's how it was for me too. Before, I, only, I became a Christian when I was 18. And if you were to talk to me about holiness before I met Jesus, every time I thought about holiness, I thought about that really awkward kid at the back of the bus who was super religious and holier than thou and snitched on everybody that nobody wanted to talk to. That's who I, that's who I thought about if you would have brought up holiness to me before I met Jesus. And honestly, I probably would have thought about that even after I met Jesus because I didn't really understand the definition of holiness for a long time after I became a Christian. Okay? So, for a lot of people in the world, holiness is this very derogatory, almost swear word like word because that's what they think of. They think of a religious, judgmental, holier than thou person. But the reality is, for a lot of Christians, you would think we would have the biblical definition. But for a lot of Christians, we don't have the biblical definition either. Because what a lot of us think holy means is to be righteous to be perfect, and to have a list of things that you check off every day. That's what most Christians would say when you ask them what holiness is. Most Christians would say holiness is behavior modification, and I'm really good at modifying my behavior, and so that means I am very, very holy. What we're going to see this morning is that holiness is not less than behavior modification, but it's much more than that. So it's not less than that. It does require moral behavior, but it's much more than that as well. And so what I want to do before I start is I want to give you a, the biblical definition, not the worldly definition, not the Christian definition, but I want to give you the biblical definition of holiness so that as I use the word, you guys know exactly what I'm making reference to, okay? So four times he says, be, he says for he who calls you is holy, so be holy, be holy because I am holy. Four times the word holy. So what in the world does the word holy mean? Now, according to the Bible, as I try to define holiness... What I have to do is I actually have to give you two definitions. Because in the Bible, there are two different types of holiness. There's the holiness of God on the one hand, and then there's the holiness of Christians on the other. And those two holiness, holy, ho- holies, they seem like the same thing, but they're totally different types of holiness. Okay? There's the holiness of God, and then there's the holiness of man. So let me begin with the first definition. The first definition that I want to give you for holiness is the holiness of God. What does it mean when the Bible says God is holy? What does it mean? The word holy, when it's describing God, it means that God is so pure, God is so righteous, God is so perfect that he is totally off the map, off the, 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 the spectrum, off the scale. He, he is totally removed, totally apart, separated from us. The word holy means that God is so perfect, so righteous, so above us that he literally cannot even be in, in, our, presence, in, in our presence, because if we were in his presence, his holiness would obliterate us. That's what the holiness of God means. You see, when it comes to God, holiness is a noun. When it comes to us, holiness is an adjective, okay? Because in the passage, he describes God as uh, be holy as I am holy. And actually, the passage that he's making reference to is in Leviticus, and God describes himself as the holy one. In other words, God is the, the one dealer of holiness. So if you're looking for holiness, the only corner you go to is the God corner, because he's the only one dealing holiness. It's the only place you can find it. It's the only place on the block where holiness is being distributed, okay? Okay. Holiness for us is an adjective. Holiness to God is a noun. Or to put it another way, God is the source of holiness. We are recipients of holiness. Okay? So the holiness of God is the 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 best way to describe it is God's holiness describes his otherliness, which I don't even know if it's a word, but I like it. Okay, so so God's holiness describes his otherliness. He's so above us, he's so separate from us, he's so bigger than us, so much bigger than us that he has his own category. He's completely off the map, completely off the scale. That's what holiness means. And you know that's a characteristic that God wants to be used, used to describe him because in, in Revelation, when the angels are in his presence, the angels who are already holy themselves, the only thing they can say when they're in God's presence is holy, holy, holy. So according to God, that's actually the characteristic that he most wants to be defined by, His holiness. There's a passage in Isaiah 55 where Isaiah says, your ways are higher than our ways, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. What he's talking about there is God's holiness. God is so much bigger than us, so much stronger than us, so much greater than us, then the way he thinks and the way he acts is totally out of, we don't understand it because he's so above us. That's what that verse is describing. In that verse, he is describing the holiness of God. Okay? So that's the first definition of holiness, the holiness of God. But the second definition is equally as important, and it's the holiness of God. That Christians have. Now, I'm being very careful with what I say there. Holiness that Christians have. In other words, the only people that can actually be holy are Christians. Now, I don't say that in a cocky way. I don't say that in a prideful way. I'm not saying that because I think Christians are better than anybody. The reason why I'm saying that is because according to scripture, the only people that can be holy are Christians. Why? Because holiness is much more than just, if if holiness was just behavior modification, then anybody can be holy. But since holiness is much more than that, only Christians can actually be holy, okay? Now, let me give you the definition of of Christian holiness and, and, and show you how it's different from God's holiness. When the Bible says that we as Christians are holy, what the word holy means, it doesn't mean behavior modification. It means that you are set apart for God. You are consecrated to God. So to become holy means that you present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. That's what Romans 12 is all about. Romans 12 is about you becoming holy. How do I become holy? By taking my hands off my life and giving myself over to God. Not just in general, but in particular. I have to take every area of my life and I have to lay it on God's altar. That's what holiness means. It means to be separate. It means to be consecrated unto the Lord, to be dedicated to him as an offering. That's what holiness means. See, that definition is really different from what a lot of Christians think holiness is. A lot of Christians think holiness is I got to do this, 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 and then maybe one day I'll be holy. No, no, no. According to scripture, holiness is something that's declared of you the moment you place your faith in Jesus. Because when you place your faith in Jesus, God no longer sees you as you. He sees you united with Christ. He sees you as one with Jesus. So since Jesus is the holy one, when we place our faith in Jesus, God sees us as holy as well. Not because we are holy, but because Jesus is holy in our place. So here's the weird thing about holiness, and this is why the definition of holiness is so much more nuanced than the world's definition or even the Christian's definition. Holiness is not just a state, a matter of doing, it's a state of being. Holiness is not just a matter of doing, holiness is a state of being. It's something that you are before it's something that you do, okay? Here's how I know this, because in the the letter to the Corinthians, which is one of the churches that Paul writes to, these people were a hot mess. The Corinthians are easily the most pagan, most sinful church that Paul writes to in the New Testament. And this brother has the audacity to start the letter and say, to the saints in Corinth. He calls them saints, and the word saints is the same word that we see here for holiness. So he's talking to easily the most worldly, most pagan congregation he has, and he says, to the saints in Corinth. He calls them saints. Why? Because holiness is weird. Because on the one hand, we are positionally already holy because we're in Jesus. But then we practically, we grow in that holiness as we walk with him. So listen, you can be a Christian who's been a Christian for 30 years. And you can be a Christian who's been a Christian for 30 seconds. And in God's eyes, both of you are equally as holy. Because your holiness doesn't come from how long you've walked with Jesus, it comes from your belief in Jesus. Because God gives you holiness, he attributes it to you the moment you place your faith in Jesus. So here's the weird thing about holiness, that as we grow in holiness, we're not becoming something that we're not, we're actually becoming exactly who we are. Okay? When when God tells us to grow in holiness, he's not telling you to get somewhere where you've never been, He's he's actually telling you just live out who you actually already are. You see, that's so different from how we define holiness. So so often we think, man, I got to read, and I got to pray, and I got to give, and I got to serve, and then maybe one day I'll get before God and God will think I'm holy. No, 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 no. You can't earn holiness. Holiness can't be earned. Holiness is either given or it's not. And so when you place your faith in Jesus, because of your unity and your union with Jesus, when God sees you, he sees you as holy, not because you are, but because Jesus is. So on the one hand, we are already 100% holy because we are in Jesus. So positionally, we are already holy. But what happens as you walk with Jesus is the reality that's already true of you when you first come to know him becomes more true of you as you walk with him. Okay, so let me give you an example. My wife and I have been married eight years. When my wife and I got married... We are, so in other words, Lily and I are just as married today as we were eight years ago when we when we when we set our vows. But we now experience that marriage, that covenant is deeper than what it was before. So I am not, I'm not more married to Lily today as I was then, but I experienced that, that marriage, those vows, that covenant to a deeper degree because I have been married to her for eight years. Does that make sense? That's how holiness is. The moment you place your faith in Jesus, you're holy. You're already accepted, you're already clean, you're already set apart for God's purposes. Okay, That's already happened. But what happens as you walk with Jesus is you start growing into the reality that's already true of you. You start becoming the thing that God has already said you are. So holiness is not becoming something you're not. Holiness is actually becoming something you already are. That's what holiness is. Holiness has to do more with being. It has to do with doing, but it has to do with being before it has to do with doing. Holiness is not so much about what I have to do as much as me understanding that it's already been done. To the degree that I understand that it's done, to that same degree I will do. That's what holiness is, according to the Bible. Look at this quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a a pastor in London uh, several decades ago. I love this quote. He says, holiness, listen to this, is not something we are called upon to do in order that we may become something. It is something we are to do because of what we already are. That's a little bit wordy, so let me read it again. Holiness is not something we are called upon to do in order that we may become something, which is what a lot of people think. I have to be holy in order to become become holy. He says, it is something we are to do because of what we already are. That's what true holiness is. I become holy because I've already been... So in other words, holiness is a declaration before it's an application. It's already been declared over you. And I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of hope. See, because holiness is really hard. But if I know that in God's eyes, I'm already a saint, and you think about that, especially people from Catholic backgrounds, there's a lot of saints in the Catholic church. And those people had to do a lot of crazy things to be considered saints. And so for a lot of us, sainthood seems like this untouchable thing. But according to scripture, the moment you place your faith in Jesus, you already are a holy saint. You are just as holy and just as saintly as the Corinthians were, even though they weren't none of those things. Why? Because of their faith in Jesus, not because of their work for Jesus. Okay? Now, here's what's interesting. If that is the definition of holiness, if the definition of holiness is to be set apart, literally in, he, in, in, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for holiness is kadush. It's this really strong word. It's kadush. And here's what it literally means. It means to be cut off. That's what holiness means. It means to be, you are part of a whole, and now that you are holy, you've been cut off, and now you are taken, and you are being used... For God's purposes, for God's glory, for God's uh, disposal. That's what holiness means. So if that's the definition of holiness, if holiness means to be set apart, if holiness means to be different, then here's what's really interesting about holiness. The world we live in, even though the world hates the word holy, the world actually wants holiness more than what it thinks. You see, because if you, any YouTube video you watch, any, any uh, commercial you watch, any show you watch, any song you listen to, deep down what people want is every artist, every person, every individual you come across, they want to be unique. They want to be different. They want to be set apart. That's the, that's the desire of all of us. None of us want to be known for just walking the straight path. None of us want to be known and forgotten because we were just like everybody else. There's a deep desire in all of us to be different, to be unique, to be set apart. Interestingly enough, you find that not by trying to be your own master, but by becoming God's servant. So here's the thing. The world wants holiness, but not biblical holiness. Because remember, biblical holiness means to be set apart unto God. The world wants to be set apart unto themselves. They want to be their own master. They want to be their own king. They want to be in control. But actually, the more holy you become, the less control you have. That's what holiness means. So if holiness means to set apart your life, to give every area of your God, to God, to consecrate every area of your life unto God, then that means the opposite of holiness. If holiness means to take your hands off your life, then, then, then the opposite of holiness, which is what the world wants, is to try to take more control of your life. The opposite of holiness is not necessarily sinfulness. The opposite of holiness is self-mastery and control. To the degree you are the master of your life, to this, that same degree you are unholy. Because holy means I, I take my hands off my money, I take my hands off my marriage, I take my hands off my singleness, I take my hands off my future, I take my hands off my education, and I put it on the altar of God. That's what holiness means. Okay? So when we don't do that, when we don't do that, the opposite of holiness necessarily is not necessarily sinfulness, even though it could be. But what it actually is is you trying to be the master of your own life. You trying to be in control when God should be in control. Okay? So... That's the meaning. That's just my first point. We're going at it today, okay? We're going after it this morning. Uh, The first truth we see here is we see the meaning of holiness. The second truth we see here, this this one is the one that probably most blew my mind. I kind of expected the other two, but this one probably is the one that most blew my mind. The second thing I want you to see this morning is I want you to see not just the meaning of holiness. I want you to see the necessity of holiness, the necessity. And to see the necessity, I'm going to read verse 14 again. Look what it says in verse 14. He says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Then verse fifteen says, "But just as he who called you as holy, so be holy in all you do." So the second truth that we see here in this passage, in, in this passage in general, but in verse fourteen and fifteen in particular, is we see the necessity of holiness. And here's what I mean by the necessity of holiness. Because a lot of us don't have a biblical definition of holiness, and a lot of us think that all holiness is is behavioral, behavior modification, since a lot of people, a lot of Christians have an unbiblical view of, 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 of uh, um, holiness, and it's such an unrealistic view, a lot of Christians treat holiness the way students treat extra credit. Like you know how when you were well you know when you were in school there was always like that really that kid that tried really hard right and all the other ones are like yeah I'm good with a C plus man I don't really care and then there was that one kid who wanted extra credit and like wanted to go above and beyond a lot of us treat holiness like extra credit like it's one of those optional things in Christianity they're like eh, nah 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 I'm I'm okay with my B minus okay that's how we treat holiness we treat it as optional a lot of Christians treat holiness the way we treat flossing. You know, like flossing is like those people who are really, really passionate about their teeth and keeping them clean. And the rest of us are like, "Eh, I'll get to it if I get to it. Not a big deal. I'm okay with two cavities a year. It's no big deal. (laughs) Right. But here's the thing. Holiness is not like extra credit and holiness is not like flossing. Holiness is not according to Peter. Holiness is not optional. Holiness is a necessity. Holiness is a, a, a requirement if you are a Christian. It is absolutely required if you are a Christian. It, you can't just avoid that one. It's not an extracurricular activity. It's a required course. It's a required course, okay? That's what he's telling us there. When he, and we know he's telling us that because he says it twice in verse 15 and 16. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. And if for it is written, be holy because I'm holy. He says the same thing in two different ways. And so what you see here is that in Peter's eyes, Holiness isn't this unrealistic thing that none of us are ever going to reach. He's not giving you that way out. He's not giving you the, ah, I can never actually be that, so I'm I'm not even going to try. No, no, no. He doesn't give us a way out. He says that holiness is not optional. Holiness is required. Holiness is a necessity, according to Peter. Now, here's the thing. If holiness is a necessity and holiness is not optional, how can we actually do it? If holiness is something that God is calling all of us to do and all of us to be, then how do we actually become holy? Well, what Peter does in verses 14 and then later on in verse 15, if you go back to verse 14, is he actually gives us two ways for us to grow in holiness. He gives us a negative command and then he gives us a positive command. And if we obey these two commands, these are the two ways in which, if we obey those commands, we will grow in holiness. So one of them is something that we need to avoid and the other one is something that we need to pursue, okay? So, 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 so one of them, one of the commands is something that we need to run from, and then the other command is something that we need to run to. So if I would describe it to you, it would be like two pedals on a bike. See, if all you had is one pedal on a bike, then you're going to either not get any balance and not go anywhere, or you're just going to be going around in circles over and over and over and over, okay? So these two commands, these two steps that he's about to give us, are the two steps that you and I have to take every day. These are the two pedals to the holiness bike. If we want to make progress in our holiness, we need the negative command on the one hand, something to avoid, and then we need the positive command on the other hand, something to pursue. So let's look at each one of them. The first thing we need to do if we are going to grow in holiness is there's something we need to avoid. Where do I get that? Well, look at verse 14. In verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. And so, what he's doing in verse 14 is he's giving us the first command, which is a negative command. He's giving us something to avoid. It's the first pedal that we have to put our foot on. He says that if you want to grow in holiness, you have to be a person who does not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. If you want to grow in holiness, there's something you have to avoid, like the plague. And what that is, Is conformity to the evil desires you had before you met Jesus. Okay? Now, what in the world is he talking about here? Let me unpack this. The word conform there is really, really interesting. The word conform means to be molded into something. It means to be shaped into something. The word conform there means to be molded or shaped into a pattern or a standard of living. That's what the word conform there. And it's in the passive voice. And here's why that's important. Because the active voice is when you're doing something. But in the Greek, when the passive voice means that you are just laying there and something is being done to you. The word conform there is in the passive voice. Why is that important? Because what Peter is saying is that the only way you're going to grow in holiness is if you are pursuing holiness. There has to be effort on your part. In other words, no one ever got to holiness on accident. And it, takes very, it takes a lot of work and a lot of intentionality if you're going to be holy. And what he's saying is when you are passive, instead of you becoming like Jesus, you can, instead of conforming to the image of Jesus, you conform to the image of the world. That's why that word conform is in the passive tense, is in the passive voice. It's something that's being done to you instead of you be doing something to something else, okay? He says, so, so here's, the way, here's the way I described it in the first service, and I've used this illustration in the past, and I use it again and again and again because I think it's just so, so helpful. Francis Chan, in his book, Crazy Love, he, he compares spiritual growth to an escalator. Here's what he says. He says, growing spiritually in your walk with God is like trying to walk up an escalator that's going down, okay? Growing spiritually is not like going up an escalator that's going up, but it's trying to walk up an escalator that's going in the opposite direction. Here's what he says. When you stop walking, you don't stay still. See, a lot of you are like, oh, I'm all about holiness, Will, but that was 2017. I'm taking a break this year. I read the Bible a lot. I prayed a lot. I'm a little bit, you know, I'm a little bit overwhelmed with this whole God thing. I'm going to go ahead and take a break. Well, according to Peter, there is no such thing as a break. If you stop moving on an escalator that's going in the opposite direction, by the time you start moving again, you are not in the same spot. You are way further behind than what you were before. That's what he's talking about here. When we become passive about our sanctification, when we become passive about our holiness, we don't stay in the same place, but we actually start to fall back into the same evil things that we worshiped before we met Jesus. You never stay still in your faith. You never stay still. Ever. So you're either moving up the the escalator or you're moving back, but you never stay still. And the moment you become passive... You start to conform back to who you were before you met Jesus. But Peter's not done there. He starts. There's so much in this verse. He, he says, okay, so he says, do not conform to what? He says, to the evil desires you had. Now, here's what's really interesting. A, a lot of times the NIV translates things correctly, but they really botched this one. And here's why. Because the word there, desires, in Greek, is not evil or, or holy. It's, it, the word desire there is neutral. It's not good or bad, and the word there is epithumia, and it's not a good or bad thing. It's a neutral desire, and I get why they did it, because they're trying to, they're doing it based on the context, but the word evil isn't there in the Bible. It's just a normal, neutral desire, okay? Now, here's why this is important. The word epithumia is a really interesting word, and I'm pretty sure, based on my study of it, that it's the, the New Testament is the only place where the word is used. It's not used anywhere else in Greek. It's only used in the New Testament. It's, a, it's literally a word that Paul and Peter made up to describe idolatry, okay? So thumia in Greek means a desire. And what, what P- Peter and Paul have done is they t- they've taken the word epi, which means over, and they've combined it with the word thumia. So they put epi, thumia. It's an over desire. So here's what this means. Here's what this means. The things that you worshipped before you came, you came to Jesus, they weren't bad things. They were good things. They were good desires. But here's what you did. You took a good thing and you promoted it to a God thing. See, that's why the word is epithumia, it's an over-desire. See, God has given us desires. There's a desire to work, there's a desire to be loved, there's a desire to be successful. But when that desire becomes an over-desire, and that thing, whether it's your marriage or your children or your future or your education or your relationship, when that thing, that desire becomes an epithumia, an over-desire, an epi-desire, then now you're committing idolatry. Now there's something other than God seated on the throne of your heart. So here's what he's saying. When you are passive about your holiness, one of the things that starts to happen is you start drifting back to the gods you used to worship. When you Listen, when you are passive about your holiness, your religion changes. You're no longer worshiping the God of the Bible, you're worshiping the God of money, or you're worshiping the God of work, or you're worshiping the God of romance, or you're worshiping the God of education. That's what he's saying. That the reason why we cannot be passive when it comes to our sanctification and our holiness is because when you are passive, what you start to do is you drift back to the God's you used to. So literally, when you, when, when you stop pursuing holiness and you, you start being passive, it's like you walk away from the altar that God's at and you walk to the work altar or you go to the family altar or you go to the relationship altar and you start worshiping something other than God. That's what happens when you are not when you are passive about your holiness. That's big. That's big. Okay? And there's one more thing I want you to see here about this this first command he gives us. He talks about how we need to avoid conforming to the evil desires. And then he says, listen to this, that you had when you lived in ignorance. The word ignorance, it means to be, literally means to be dumb. It means to lack knowledge. It means to be spiritually blind. Now, now, listen to this. This is important. He says that the, the, the less intentional you are, when you stop being intentional about your holiness, when you stop pursuing holiness and you become passive, you actually become spiritually dumb. You become spiritually blind again. You go back to the blindness that you used to have. Now, here's why this is so important, because the word ignorance has to do with our minds, Right? And what a lot of people accuse Christianity of is, oh, the reason why I'm not a Christian is because I'm too intellectual. I'm too smart. I read too much. I I have a master's. I can't believe in Christianity. Christianity is for the simple folk, right? I, I can't lower myself to those standards. That's for simple people who have only faith and have turned off their brains. But if what Peter's saying is true, the people who've turned off their brains are not the people who are walking with Jesus, it's the people who are not walking with Jesus, Because ignorance comes when you go back to who you were. And you know the mind is involved because later in verse 13, right up there, it talks about our minds, with minds that are alert and fully sober. In other words, God doesn't want you to turn your brain off. God wants you to turn your brain on. And so if you're sitting here, and the reason why you're not considering Christianity is because you're intellectually superior, what you actually are is you're intellectually inferior for Christianity, okay? here's what's really interesting. One of my, you guys hear me quote him all the time. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. I have pretty much have read everything he's written. And, I, and I, just, I just love the way his mind works and the way he sets up things. But one of my favorite books that Lewis has written, has written or wrote is uh, The Great Divorce. And, and for those of you who don't know about The Great Divorce, here, here's pretty much the premise of The Great Divorce. And it's really not that biblical. Like, you, he just made it up. It's a fable. It's not really that biblical. But, but, here, but here's what he does in The Fable. In the story, it's him. He's the main character, right? And at the beginning of the story, he's on this bus and he is deciding, he just died, and he's deciding whether he goes to heaven or hell. So before he chooses, he he takes a bus ride with a bunch of people and they're all going on a tour of heaven to see if heaven is a legitimate option for them, right? And so he's riding on the bus up there and there's all these different personalities on the bus and they're all talking and interacting, okay? And then when they get there, he meets his person, who's George McDonald, who is this other famous theologian that really influenced C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis places him in the story, and he's the guy that meets him. So when they get there, every person who gets off the bus has a representative from heaven who knows them, who's trying to sell them on heaven. And so throughout the book, um, uh, C.S. Lewis and, and George McDonald are walking, and they keep walking in on people's conversations. And in chapter five of the book, they get, to this, uh, they, they get to this river, and at the river, there are two people talking. There's this one guy who was already in heaven. His name's Dick. And then there's another guy who hasn't been in heaven, who's not in heaven yet. He was one of the people on the bus. And Lewis describes him as the fat ghost. I'm not sure why he did, but that's the name of the dude. So it's fat ghost and Dick, and they're talking, okay? And so... So, so 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 Lewis and George McDonald, his mentor, the guy who's walking him around, his tour guide, they walk in on this conversation. And as they walk in, these guys are having a debate. And the reason why they're debating, listen, the reason why they're debating is because the guy who was on the bus, fat ghost, that guy, he the reason why he refuses to go into heaven, he tells them, he's like, I can't go into heaven. And his friends like, why? He's like, Because intellectually, I can't accept what the Bible teaches. That's what he's telling him. So he's telling his friend, the reason why I refuse to go into heaven is because I can't turn my brain off, and I'm too smart, I'm too intellectual, I'm too well-read, and I just can't do it. That's what his friend, the the guy on the bus who came on the bus is telling the guy who's already in heaven. He's like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not shutting my brain off. And he's like, I, 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 I used to, he's, but then his friend's like, but we used to be Christians. We used to walk with the Lord. And he's like, yeah, I know. But then I got to heaven. I mean, he's like, I got to college, remember? And when we were in college, he's like, I started really thinking about it. And I started writing papers. And then I just, I learned too much. And that's why I left the faith. And his friend in the book, his friend calls him out. His friend's like, wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. That's not how I remember it. And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, you didn't leave the faith because you changed your mind. He's like, when you got to college, you still believed the gospel, but you started to write papers that reflected what your professor was thinking because you wanted to be accepted by your professor and by your classmates. He's like, so you didn't change your mind because you, you thought too much. You changed you change your mind because you shut your mind off. His, his friend calls him off. He's like, he calls him out. He was right next to him. He's like, I was right next to you. You did not leave Christianity because of intellectual reasons. You left Christianity because you were trying to impress your professor and your classmates. And then over time, you actually started to believe the things you were writing. But at first, you didn't leave because you were convinced. You left because you were trying to impress someone other than Jesus. So, so listen to what that story means. This is really important. What, what Lewis is saying is that the reason why people leave Christianity is not because they've turned their brains on. is because they've turned their brains off. And they care more about what the people around them think than what the God above them thinks. Okay? So... What we see here is that the first command that we need to obey, the first pedal that we need on our bike if we are going to grow in our holiness is we need to avoid something. We need to run away from something. What are we running away from? We are running away from the world and its evil desires and the things that we used to worship. That's the first step. If you're going to grow in holiness, there's something you need to avoid. But that's not the only pedal. There's another pedal to the bike. Not only is there something you need to avoid, there's also something you need to pursue. And here's why this is so important, because if all you're doing is avoiding, at some point avoiding gets, tired. It gets tiring, right? See, Christianity is a marathon, it's not a game of tag. And so many Christians, they only take the first step, which is avoid the world at all costs, but they never take the second step, which is to run to something better. And so every time these Christians come to small groups in church, they're exhausted because they've been playing tag all day, all, all week. The world's over there, they're like, oh, you can't get me, world. Oh, I'm going to, oh, oh, snap, oh, oh I got to go this way. Ah, you know, like they're, like they're six again. And they get to small group, they're like, man, I'm exhausted. I've been running all week, man. The world almost got me on Tuesday, but. But listen, holiness isn't a game of tag. Holiness is not just about avoiding something. Holiness is about pursuing something better. And what is the thing we have to pursue? What is the other pedal on the bike? Well, he tells us in verse 15, if you go to verse 15, he says, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. And so what we need to pursue, is not just a matter of avoiding something, it's a matter of pursuing something. And according to Peter, what we need to pursue is holiness. We need to run after it as hard as we can. It's not just a matter of getting away from this, but it's running to that. And that is holiness. Now, here's the question. Let me me bring this from up here down to the most practical way I can put it. How do I pursue holiness? How can you and I, we know that that we have to avoid the world, got that part, that's the first pedal. but how do we actually pursue holiness? Here's what's so interesting about this. Holiness, remember what holiness means? Holiness means to be set apart to be set apart for the purposes of God. Holiness means to be consecrated unto God. It means to put yourself on the altar, like Romans 12 says, offer yourselves up as living sacrifices unto the Lord. Okay? So here's what it means to be holy. Holiness means to take every area of your life, your marriage, your money, your children, your job, your future, your past, your education, your appearance. Holiness means to take every area and arena of your life and set it on the altar of God consecrated unto him holiness means to take your hand off every area of your life hands off every area of your life so so here's the thing here's the thing back to what I said before if all we had was the first step which is do not worship the things you used to worship then a lot of you think you're holy already and you're not because you're thinking oh well you don't understand I used to worship money a lot but I don't worship money anymore well that's great but that's only half the process See, you don't become holy when you stop worshiping money. You become holy when you take that thing you're not worshiping anymore and you set it on God's altar. See, if all you do is not worship money anymore, that means that you're just worshiping something else. Something else took money's place. You're neutral, right? But that's only half the battle. It's not enough just to avoid the world. That, oh, I've grown so much. I don't worship money anymore. Well, well you know you're holy, not when you stop worshiping money, but when you worship God with your money. That's when you're holy. Oh, 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 you don't understand. I used to have so much anxiety with my children. I don't have any anxiety anymore. They're not an idol anymore. Oh, that's great. You're not worshiping your kids anymore. But are they on the altar? Have you consecrated them to God? Have you taken your hands off of them? Have you, have you put your hands off of it and said, this doesn't belong to me? If you're single here today and, and, and you've been looking for someone to, to date or to marry, you're like, oh, I used to worship that, but I don't worship that anymore. Well, that's great, but that's only half the battle. It's not just not worshiping it the way you used to. Now it's to take that area of your life and you're setting it on the altar. You're consecrating it unto the Lord. You're giving it to him and saying, this belongs to you. It doesn't belong to me. So you do with what you want to with this. It's your will be done in this area, not mine. That's holiness. So think about this. Think about this. If that's true, then that means anxiety. If you're sitting here today and you struggle with anxiety at all, In whatever area of your life you're struggling with anxiety, in that area you are unholy. See, anxiety is one of those ones, those sins that really bothers me. Because there's some sins that we're really, really like strict with. But if there's one sin that we accept in the church all the time, it's totally acceptable, is anxiety. Oh, I'm anxious, I'm anxious. And I get it, we got to meet people where they're at. But a lot of us just leave people there. Oh, you're anxious? We're praying for you. And then the next week, I'm still anxious. We're praying for you, sister. We love you. The next week I'm still anxious. Nothing's changed. Anxiety is totally unacceptable. You know why? Because the reason why you're anxious, let's say with your money or your relationships or your future, is because in that area you are still unholy. Because if to be holy means to take your hands off of something, to be holy means to not be the master of that area anymore, but to be a servant to God in that area, the reason why you're anxious is because you're still trying to control something that belongs to God. And so anxiety is a symptom of unholiness. That's big. I, your prayer needs to be, as you go to God, your prayer needs to be, God, here's, my, here's my, my future. Here's my money. Here's my job. Here's my appearance. Here's my children. Here's my marriage. It all belongs to you. It's not enough not just to not worship it. You also have to consecrate it and sacrifice it unto the Lord and let his will be done in each one of those areas. See, what you see then, if this is all true, that holiness is much more practical than what we thought. Holiness is way more practical. You see, that's what's funny about Romans 12. In Romans 12, the Bible says that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. But you know what the problem with living sacrifices are? They can roll off the altar, they're still alive. See, dead sacrifices can't go anywhere, they're, they gotta stay there, right? But because we're living sacrifices, we can roll off whenever we want. And so every Sunday after church, you're like, God, you lay on the altar again. You're like, God, I'm not moving. I'm, it's all about you this week. I'm going to read, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to do so much. You're going to be so blown away by me. You're going to see. You're going to be so impressed, God. And then by Tuesday, we're like, mm Wednesday, we're like, mm And then by Thursday, we're like, stop, drop, and roll. I'm out of here. <laughs> Off the altar again. And then we renew the process all over again the next week. That's the problem with living sacrifices. They can get off the altar whenever they want, okay? So what we see in this, in this uh, di- dichotomy, what we see here is that we grow in holiness as, to the degree that we see ourselves as set apart to that same degree we grow in our holiness. That's what, he's, what we're saying, what's being said here. And look at this quote from, this is a Puritan. His name is Thomas Watson, who died a long, long, long time ago. Listen to what he says about holiness. It's a little bit old English, so bear with me. He says, he that chooses God devotes himself to God as the vessels of the sanctuary were consecrated and set apart from common to holy uses. So he that has chosen God to be his God has dedicated himself to God and will no more be devoted to profane uses. This is why you know that holiness is much more than just behavior modification, because a table in the Old Testament couldn't behave. And yet it was a holy table if it was in God's sanctuary. See? A cup couldn't behave because it wasn't alive. And yet it was considered holy because it was set apart unto God. And so what we see is that holiness is much more than just behavior modification. And that holiness is a, is a status before it's something we have to do. It's a declaration before it's an application. Because, because if, if a table can be holy and it can't even obey God, that means that we can be holy before we do anything. And so holiness means, holy, to, be, to be holy, not only do you have to not be who you used to be, that's only half the battle. Holiness is not, just, is not just not becoming who you were. Holiness is becoming who you actually are. Okay? So holiness is not just not becoming who you were. Holiness is now becoming who you actually are. You are holy positionally, and in light of that, you can become holy practically. Okay? So, the first thing we see here is we see the meaning of holiness. And the second thing we see here in this passage is we see the necessity of holiness. And, and now that we know the meaning, what it is, and the necessity, why it's needed, what I want to do as I conclude this morning is I want to look at the motivation, the motivation. Here's why this is one so important. The reason why the motivation is so important is because ho- hopefully by now you can see that being holy is not easy. Being a holy person is a very difficult task, okay? And so the reason why I want to end with the motivation is because there has to be something very compelling in order for us to be motivated to be these type of people every single day. There has to be something incredibly compelling if we are going to be motivated to be holy every day of our lives. So let's look at what that motivation is. Look what he says, Peter, in verse 13. In verse 13, he says, Therefore, With minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Now, here's the thing. Listen, 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 listen. You would think, and this is just me, like if I was Peter and I was, if someone told me, God told me, hey, I want you to write a a passage on holiness. That's my God voice. I want you to write a passage on holiness, right? If I were to grab a pen and start writing a passage on holiness and I got to the part where I was giving you the motivation, you know what I would use? This is just me. I would use the law of God, right? That's what you would think because holiness is all about obedience and doing and doing and doing and doing. And so I would think, that the motivation for uh, uh, for, for holiness, I would make it the law of God. But that's not what Peter does. That's not what Peter does. Peter doesn't go to the law of God. Peter goes to the grace of God. That's crazy, though. So, you, 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 I, don't, I don't know, about, but I guarantee you that when we sat down this morning and you found out, oh, here we go, we're talking about holiness. He's going to give us 16 steps on how to do this and how to pray and how to read and how to this and how to that. You were ready for the, we you, you had your no hands out, you I mean your, your notes out, and you're ready to take all the steps you need to take, right? And honestly, if I was the one that wrote this passage, I probably would have done that. And my motive, the motivation for me would have been the law of God. But that's not what Peter says. Peter says that the ultimate motivation. To be holy is not the law of God, it's the grace of God. What? How how do you figure that? It's funny because he almost teases us a little bit. Because in the beginning of verse 13, he starts with what seems like action verbs, right? Because he says, uh, with minds that are alert and fully sober. So it seems like, okay, okay, yeah, 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 tell me what to do. I'm ready, I'm ready. Tell me what to do. (laughs) Okay. But what's interesting in the Greek... Those uh, the, the word alert and the word sober, they're not in the imperative. They're not commands. They are participles, and they are describing another verb. They're not commands in the Greek. They are participles describing set your hope. So, so the alert and the sober are describing the hope. They're not commands in and of themselves. They are participles describing the ultimate command, which is to set your hope in the grace of God. Now, the word alert there is very interesting in Greek because literally what the word alert there means, it has to do with our thinking. It literally means to gird up the loins of your mind. you're like, what? Here's what this means. Back then, both men and women wore really long robes. You always had a robe on, no matter where you went. And so one of the things you would do when you were preparing yourself for strenuous activity is you would gird up your robe and you would tie your belt around the robe so that your legs were exposed. And that would mean that you're ready to go do something, to run or to fight. It's actually what the, the Roman soldiers would do too. Before you got ready to fight, you would gird up your robe, you would tie your belt around it, and that meant you were ready to battle, okay? So the word there, to gird up your loins, means to prepare yourself to, for, for something strenuous, Okay? But that's not the only thing he says. He says, with minds that are alert, then he says, fully sober. Now, when we think of sober, we think of drinking and getting drunk, right? But actually, in Greek, the word sober means to be self-controlled. It means to be composed. It means to think clearly. It means to not be under the influence of anything. Not just alcohol, but under the influence of anything, okay? Okay? So both the word alert and the word sober makes it seem like there's something for us to do. So so we have our pens out and we're like, okay, okay, I'm ready. My 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 my, my uh, loin is girded. Tell me what to do. I'm ready. Where do I go? What do where do I run? What do you want me to do? I'm ready to go. Give me the six steps. This man says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace. There's nothing to do. Holiness is not about what you need to do. Holiness is about what's already been done. You can never be holy if you think it's about what you do. You only become holy when you understand that it's been done already. That's what grace is, that it's been done. And so so that's just so crazy to me. That, that he, he seems like he's about to give it to you. Oh, Peter's writing on holiness. He's about to give me all these steps. And what's the thing he says? You can't do any of the rest. You can't do verse 14 through 16 if you don't do verse 13. What's verse 13? Set your hope on the grace of Jesus. You can't do it unless you set your hope on, on the grace. Grace comes first. Acceptance comes before accomplishment. The indicative, who you are, comes before the imperative, what you do. And if that's not enough, another word that you see, the reason why you know that the gospel is the ultimate motivation is not just because of what he says when he says, set your hope on the grace. That's clear enough. But then to to add insult to injury, to make make sure you get it, the word therefore tells you that it's not about you. Why? Because when someone uses the word therefore, here's what they're doing. They want you to connect what they just said with what they previously said. The question is, what did Peter previously say? In verses 1 through 12, all Peter has been talking about is the gospel and the finished work of Jesus. That's all he's been talking about, the gospel in our predestination, the gospel in our suffering. And then after 12 verses of the gospel, he says, Therefore, in light of the gospel, put your hope in the gospel, just in case you didn't get it. In light of the 12 verses on the gospel, put your hope in the gospel. Just in case you didn't pay attention to the first 12 verses I gave you. That's beautiful. Holiness is not about what we do. Holiness is about what's been done. And then to take it a step further, in verse 14, he describes us as obedient children. And what I love about that is that on the one hand, the word obedient, we see the necessity of holiness because God's calling us to be holy. But then in the word children, we see the, 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 the grace and the love of God. You see, because it doesn't say obedient slaves, it doesn't say obedient employees, right? Because an employee, the reason why an employee obeys is because they're either trying to get a promotion or they're trying not to get fired, right? When a slave obeys, because they're not trying to get slapped or they're not trying to get killed. But a child obeys for totally different reasons. You see, a child obeys not in order to get his father's love, a child obeys because he already has his father's love. And so the reason why we are obedient children, listen... It's not because we obey that we're children. We obey because we already are children. Okay? So we don't obey in order to be children. We are children already, and now we get to obey. Totally different motivation. Totally different motivation. And then one of the, one of the things that really stood out to me, if you go to verse 15, one of the things that stood out to me as I was preparing this week, if you go to verse 15, Next. Okay, so, so he, here's what he says. In, so He talks about holy, and then he quotes something. In verse 16, you see him, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. So he's quoting something. And the question is, what is Peter quoting? Where in the Bible does it say that? And out of all the books that that phrase can be said, it's in the book of Leviticus. And if you know anything about the Bible, the book of Leviticus is the most law-based Mosaic covenant book in all of the Bible. And so Peter goes all the way back to Leviticus and he says, be holy because I am holy. But here's what's really interesting about Leviticus. And you only know this if you read the Bible and you see it as a biblical theology. Here's what's really important about Leviticus. The only reason why God gives that command is because of the redemption that he already gave the Israelites in Exodus. Here's what I mean by that. In the book of Exodus, God redeems the Israelites out of Egypt. God didn't give any laws or any rules until after he redeemed his people. In other words, the commands didn't come until after the covenant was made. Even at the beginning of Exodus 20, which is when he gives the Ten Commandments, he says in Exodus 20, he says, uh, before he gives the commandments, he says, for behold, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Israel. So he begins with the redemption before he gives them the requirements. He begins with the covenant before he gives them the commands. And so the reason why be holy as I am holy can seem very legalistic in the Old Testament but actually isn't legalistic is because God is saying this in in light of what he already did for them when he redeemed them. He's saying, be holy as I am holy because I've already redeemed you and you're already my people and you're already my children. See, God knew that the redemption from Egypt was so glorious that if they really understood it, it would be the best motivation for them to be holy as he was holy. But now think about this. Don't miss this. If a Jew who only had the redemption from Egypt, could be motivated to be holy, how much more should we be holy when we have been redeemed not from Pharaoh, but from Satan, not from Egypt, but from hell, and not from from slavery, but from death? If a Jew could rejoice, if a Jew should be motivated to be holy in light of that redemption, how much more motivated should we be in light of Jesus' redemption? It's the ultimate motivation. And that's why it's not God's law that changes you. It's not God's law that motivates you. It's God's grace that motivates you. And then later on in that same book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 10, you have this crazy story. And and for those of you who don't know the Bible, Moses had a brother. His name was Aaron. Aaron was the high priest. And every every person that came from Aaron was to be the priest from then on in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple. And in Leviticus chapter 10, you find this story about Aaron's two sons, uh, Nadab and Abihu. They go into the tabernacle, and in their carelessness and their pride and their sinfulness, they offer up a strange fire to God. And the passage says that God consumes them and kills them immediately, that the holiness of God destroys the priest. And then for the rest of the passage, everyone's freaking out. They're like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 what happened? Everyone's paralyzed. Everyone's terrified because of God's holiness because he's like, these two priests just got wiped out because they did one thing wrong. And if that's the God we're worshiping, how can we worship a God like that? Everyone's terrified. Everyone's totally paralyzed by the the holiness of God. Here's the thing. That was not the last time that a priest died in God's presence. That's not the last time that a high priest died in God's presence. A few centuries later, another high priest died in God's presence. But he didn't die in a tabernacle. He died on a cross. You know, one of the things I found out this week that I didn't know is that when a, when, a, when a high priest would go into the temple, he would wear this turban, and the turban would say, holy to God. What a lie, man. Who, what man can go into God's holy presence and, and have that on their forehead, holy to God? There's only one man, and his name was Jesus. And listen, if you think you see God's holiness at the tabernacle when those two guys died, how much more is God's holiness displayed at the, displayed at the cross when his son died? See, at the cross, he not only was the ultimate high priest, he was the ultimate offering. In John chapter 17, verse 19, Jesus says, he, this is, I, you, you could read right past it if you're not paying attention. He's praying. It's the, the priestly prayer, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. In John 17, verse 19, Jesus says, I sanctify myself for them so that they might be truly sanctified. And you're like, wait, what? How can Jesus be sanctified? That's the word holy there. How can Jesus be more holy when he's already holy? Well, here's what he means. He's talking about his death. He's saying, I am going to set myself apart for them so that later on they can be set apart for me. Jesus, the ultimate high priest, unlike the, the, the two sons who were sinless, he, sinful, he was sinless, and yet he was still consumed by God's holiness. And if you think you see God's holiness at the tabernacle, how much more do you see God's holiness at the cross? And listen, at the cross, God treated Jesus the way you deserved so that when you place your faith in him, God can treat you the way he deserved. That's what we have in Jesus. Listen. To the, degree, to the degree that you understand, to the degree that you see Jesus set apart for you, to that same degree you will be set apart for him. To the degree that you see yourself as a beloved child, to that same degree you will be an obedient child. And to the degree that you understand your position of holiness, to that same degree you will grow in practical holiness. Let's pray.